This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. been following the case of Alexander um, Jackson out of, uh, I guess it's Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And I'd been, I'd actually been streaming. I streamed the trial. I've been following it for a while. This is a case where the guy is accused of killing his younger sister and his mom and his dad. He's found guilty. Like the verdict just came out as we're sitting here. But you brought us some good points about it. it. So this is a kind of an odd type of family annihilation because it was not typically in a, in a family annihilation. It's a father or a mother who kill the children and the other partner. Most of them, the majority of them are, are men, you know, killing their children and their girlfriend or their wives or whatever. This one is a little different because it's the, the son doing it. What's the other one? There's a family annihilator, and then there's a uh, related to the family killers. There's an annihilator, and then a I can't remember. Are you talking about the people who kill themselves, or what's what's the uh, one where they kill themselves? What's that called? Okay, so uh, technically, there's four types of of annihilators if they kill themselves it's it's not a big deal sorry go ahead we used to have like a pretty in-depth discussion about which category the person that killed their entire family and then themselves like which one it was well the annihilator i've always thought i think it has a lot to do with intention which is not necessarily how it's like by the book categorized but i don't know that this dude would actually be a family annihilator in uh, motivation. Now that doesn't mean that he didn't annihilate his family because he did, but uh, usually the family annihilator has a motivation uh, that is sort of like doomsday-esque, right? Yeah. And I, I just don't know that that's what happened here, but it's not, that's not important as far as what we're talking about right this moment. I just, I thought if you knew right off the top of your head. Well, I divide the annihilators first that's why that's where i was headed which is why so that would be like self-righteous disappointed um animic or paranoid those are the four types of like annihilators so self-righteous they blame someone for usually the family being on the verge of breaking up disappointed means that they think their family failed them Right, or um, they failed their family, but they don't want to leave them behind. <laughs> right, a, a gnomic is generally related to, um, it's almost like you're laying off your family because they're no longer needed. Like <laughs> like, like they failed, usually it's financial. And then paranoid, they think they're protecting their family from yeah. some kind of threat, and the only way to protect them is to kill them. 
There's some pretty deep dynamics in that whole situation. <laughs> right, right. But those are the four that like, I, you know, I read it in a study in, in recent years and I believe in those dynamics. They, it was based on, I think, about 80 family annihilators from the 80s, 90s, and the, the aughts. Uh, I think the most recent one was 2011, maybe. But, you know, of those 80, like 59 or 60 of them were male. They were almost all in their 30s. It was an, it was an interesting read. I don't know if this guy fits that. Um, but I was following the case of Alexander Jackson because he had staged a home invasion. And he shot himself in the foot. And I find that interesting. When somebody goes to the extreme of hurting themselves, and you, you said, well, why didn't he cut off the home surveillance? And I don't know the answer to that, but... That's a really obvious question, though, right? Because essentially, he had it all set up in his head. He's been injured by the same perpetrator that killed his entire family. He endures this injury but he doesn't cut the security cameras that clearly show nobody entering or exiting the house. Right. Right. So, I mean, what is that? He got mad. His dad told him he had to get out and get a job. But what I, the reason I brought it up to you is I was going to tell you, um, I noticed, so I did not like follow this when it happened. I actually wasn't even, like aware of it at first, but I, somebody had sent me a link to something right before the trial started, asked me if I followed it, what I thought of it. And that person was one of those, um, she's, I'm, I'm being very vague, but they run those big Facebook groups where everybody gets involved in an ongoing criminal case. And right. sometimes they send me interesting stuff and ask for my opinion. When, when I was looking at it, I think it came to me and she was like, what do you think of this? And like, I didn't know what to think of it, but I noted that the the person I was seeing in like the pretrial hearing, I think at first I didn't recognize the defendant because in all the articles that were attached to that case, when I like briefly pulled it up, he's kind of a chunky guy, but in the, um, and he, he's like 20, 21 years old, something like that. When I, when I saw him in the, the video feeds, he was not chunky anymore. And I was like, well, that's what happens when your mom's not cooking for you every day. Whatever. You know, it's kind of mean. <laughs> that seems a little bit dramatic, but I hear you. <laughs> no, he's, he's he got a lot thinner. Um, anyways, like he had been basically told to, to get a job or, you know, get out. Which, you know, if you're 20 years old or 21 years old or whatever he was, like that's a completely reasonable thing. Well, it doesn't matter if it's reasonable or not. The solution is not to kill them. Yeah. Well, he, you know, he's representative of this sort of new age of, like, weird people. And when I was following along in that case, we were covering, like, serial killers. And I, I couldn't help but wonder, like, is that guy, like, would he have been, like, a serial killer down the road? I don't think he would have. I think he was just lazy. And didn't want to like. Why not? Why would you kill your family for telling you to get a job? That's like. Where's a breakdown in that logic? Well, there. It. It's not logical. It's a lack of of self control. Yeah. Um, because uh, we all could have that moment in time where 
somebody tells us to do something that doesn't fit with our prerogative as we see it, Mm -hmm. but what they're saying is completely reasonable. Right. And, you know, if you flew off the handle, you could absolutely just, I have a feeling, and I, I feel like we've talked about this before. I have a feeling he was struggling anyway, and that it was so, like his father telling him, you know, you need to stop being lazy and go get a job. I feel like it was sort of just adding insult to injury. So he probably had some sort of underlying reason that needed to be addressed as to why he was being so lazy. And he didn't know how to handle it. And so it's yeah, but, like picking okay. at something. I, I kind of like, so you're saying he felt embarrassed or humiliated by his dad making that commentary? No, I'm saying that like he suffered like from social anxiety or like failure to launch or like something that like he could have used like some mentorship or like something besides like get your butt off the couch and go to work, like something besides just sort of a nagging instruction, right? But see, a lot of people can't, I'm not excusing what he did. Okay. It was perfectly reasonable for his father to say that. I'm just saying, like, it might not have been as simple as he's just lazy. Oh, yeah. No, I follow what you're saying there. I mean, the thing is, though, when you are on the struggle bus and riding (laughs) along as a passenger on the struggle bus, which, you know, everybody ends up on the struggle bus, right? Everybody gets on. the, The struggle bus has a unique feature in that on the wall, there is like a map of the route and like, you know, it lists all the stops and the places that you can go. And like, it can be difficult for you to get your shit together enough to stop and look at the map on the wall and figure out where to go on, you know, the route of the struggle bus. But at no point in time for me, do I understand how they like decide that they're going to like get off at the murder stop? Cause that's not even on my map. Right. No. And uh, I don't think that that's the case. I think what happens is in a like deflated state, you're on the struggle bus and it's like the person beside you is saying, you're going to have to get off eventually. You're going to have to get off eventually. You're going to have to get off eventually. You know, mom, he's not touching me, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and you're going, you know, I am well aware that I've got to get off it eventually. I don't need you throwing it in my face, right? Yeah. And especially with the, uh, I, I am actually not sure how old he was. Depending on when it happened, I'm thinking like 19-ish. And I think he had dropped out of college maybe. But she So the sister's 19 and he's listed as the older brother. So he's somewhere right around there, 19, 20, 20 21, something. Yeah, so a young adult, uh, and he's at a like a pivotal point where he must have gone to college and then dropped out of college, and that's a very typical reaction to kids that drop out of college is like, that's fine, but you're not going to be living under my roof rent-free, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's a pretty typical response uh, from parents. Now, his response in killing everybody was not normal, and you know, we wonder, like, well, why did he do that? Like, would he have ended up being a serial killer? Well, everybody has the capacity to kill. Uh, if you feel like you're being picked on, which I feel like he felt like he was being picked on, whether it was 
whether he actually was being picked on or not is not really, it doesn't really matter. He felt like he was. Now, what was this the one where, like, did he have a financial motive as well? No, I don't. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I don't think so. It didn't so, come up in the trial like he had some kind of financial thing going on. Right. And so, you know, okay, he kills his uh, parents. And then I assume he probably killed his sister, like, so she didn't turn him in. Uh, clearly, he didn't think this through. Uh, I don't really think that there's a question that he Well, the, the murder there. weapon came from within the house, and he was like, we were cleaning it, and then it was on the main. And this is, and not only that, there's body camera footage, there's surveillance footage in this one, which I always love when there's lots of video. Nobody comes or goes from the house on their surveillance footage, which was your point. Like, why not just cut that off? And then, in addition to that, like... like if you're the, going to shoot yourself, why not just cut that off? <laughs> look, okay, okay, so I'll say this in a much more blunt manner. If you are living in your parents' house to the extent that your father comes to you and he says, you have got to do something with your life. You've got to either get a job or get out. Look, if you can't in your mind go, yep, I either need to do something or get out, and that makes sense, I'm going to tell you unequivocally, you are not a criminal mastermind that's going to be able to put off three first-degree murders for any reason. And you're not going to be able to cover it up because you can't get out of your house and get a job. That means that you also cannot get away with murder. I would agree with that. And that's why I don't think he was like, you know, ever going to be a serial killer. He reacted. And he like, so from the reaction, he had to take other actions that were equally as bad. Right. So I don't know who he killed first, but he killed one of his parents and then he had to kill the other parent. Then he had to kill his sister or however that happened. Right. And it was, it's not like he said, okay, I'm going to kill my family and here's my plan. I'm going to shoot myself. He's coming up with the narrative of what happened in like real time or like just after he's done it. Right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you're right. Somebody who uh, can't maintain a job or, you know, who's having these like conflicts and reacting in these like really exaggerated ways, they're not going to get away with murder. Right. I mean, it's actually a pretty substantial thing to do. And especially when you're the surviving member of the family, like. Yeah. I, you know, that's not a great idea. Um, you're probably not going to get away with it. It just failed him completely. I think he, I mean, the, the whole process, he was, he acted and then he reacted because he then had to explain this in a way where he's not going to go to jail for the rest of his life. He's not successful. And my comment to you was when they released the verdict, I'm not sure why that guy went to trial. Like, what was he doing? I, I have I have absolutely no idea what was going on with he got some terrible advice from his attorneys or he didn't listen to it or something. I think um, he didn't listen to it. I don't think there's an attorney on earth that would have taken that on. Uh, did you did they maintain the intruder defense? Yeah, yeah, they maintained that uh, this was some kind of phantom burglar. And did you know, they the, uh, qualify why they didn't show up on video? No, 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 they, you know, just missed. So they just ignore that. Yeah. They just ignore the elephant in the room completely. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, I mean, he just, the guy also, and I hate to say this about people, but he was just one of those people that looked guilty. Like from the minute he started talking to the cops on the body camera, he looked guilty. His account made no sense. He knew that was going to happen. So he shot himself in the foot with a 22 long rifle. I mean, if you're shooting yourself in the foot and like, he literally, like he pulled a hero scenario. I was trying to get the gun away from him. You know, that whole thing, it just wasn't true. It wasn't accurate. Well, he could have gone to jail just as easily for first-degree murder and not have to have been shot if he had just considered the surveillance video and confessed. He also could have pled. He could have pled second-degree, I think. I think he could have gotten, like, It could have been a crime of passion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He could have just, I mean, except for the fact that he, like, shot himself and was constantly trying to cover it up, he could have, like, probably mitigated his circumstances to some degree. But he's not been sentenced yet, but the only real sentence for him is life. I don't think it's a capital case. I didn't actually pay attention to that part. um, I don't think they pursued it as one. It's possible, though. I don't know. You know, the only solution in that type of case is, you know, to go back in time. And uh, as he's growing up and, you know, becoming the person he ends up being, somebody has to emphasize to him the importance of self-control. Right. And he has to learn uh, that you can have the thought in your head when you get mad. You just can't act on it. And, you know, it's not always our parents that do that. We learn it through circumstances. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you can feel a whole lot of things and you aren't completely in control. Like you can't say, I'm not going to be mad about this. Right. But you can say, I'm going to be mad about this and I'm going to move past it and do whatever it is, you know, is a healthier decision. And that's really the only solution there, you know, because it's not something where he like had this, at least I don't perceive it that way i don't perceive that he was like this serial killer in the making who plotted this and like this is why you know he did it because he was starting his killing spree as a serial killer right right i think he was just uh upset and he lashed out and i bet and so this is the kind of guy who would take it back if oh absolutely i think he would yeah 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 um, and not just because he got caught and he's now going to go to jail for the rest of his life, but because he's he didn't, like, the consequences of his actions were that he lost his entire family because he was mad because his parents wanted the best for him. Yeah. And, you know, when you can't process all that out, um, it, it's very sad, for one thing, but it's also a pretty common type of, uh, pathway that like these domestic type murders take, right? Yeah. It's almost always just sort of a an emotional response to a temporary situation with permanent consequences. Yeah, it really is. It's a permanent solution to a temporary situation. I, I'm not going to dwell on this case because it's now like it's going to be sentenced in March and, and like life's going to go on. It's, it is a tragic case. Um, I wanted to mention a couple of other things to you. So, this is weird, but did you hear about this girl, Madison Brooks, at LSU? Does that ring a bell? Okay. So, it, okay, this happened this morning. It was like uh, pretty disturbing. I have a girl, I'm in all these dog groups. Like, um, I don't know how to describe them, but they're like rescue share groups. Um, I have a couple of specific breeds of dog in my house. So, I share when. 
like there's a foster needed or a rescue needed. And some of the groups I'm in are very large and they're very breed specific to the dogs I have because two of the types of dogs I have have very problematic adoption processes. Usually you have to have breed specific people that have them. So this morning there's a girl in, in the group and her name is Madison Brooks in the group. But like this girl is someone I've known at least online through these groups for like a really long time. Uh, It's not her, but like she went to LSU. This other girl went to LSU. Um, She was a performer, but she's already graduated from LSU. And the girl that I'm about to tell you about is, was actually a student at LSU. Uh, She was active in, in the Greek life there. She's 19 years old. This is the craziest story I've heard. It's like the opening scene to a horror movie. Um, and I swear it transitions to the next story and then the topics for today. I just, like, I, I couldn't figure out, like, um, at first I couldn't figure out if it was someone I knew or not. And that really bothered me because um, I have quite a bit of, like, friends and, and important people in uh, the in Louisiana. But um, the East Baton Rouge Parish Sheriff's Office uh, released a report about a girl who had been hit and killed by a car on January the 15th. And the reason I say it's like a a horror scene is that they arrested like six people. Four guys were arrested like outright. And I think there's more that they're arresting. They haven't released names on one of them. They haven't released his name because he's a minor for raping her like in the moments before she died. So she was hit by a car and killed but she was raped right before that happened. So they arrested this guy, uh, Kevon DeAndre Washington, 18, and a 17-year-old unidentified minor. You know, that six months between them makes all the difference in, in their names being plastered all over the internet for what's known as third-degree rape. But then they charged a guy named Everett Lee, who's 28, and a guy named Kason Carver, who is 18, with principle to third degree rape. Are you familiar with this concept at all? Like being a principal? Only a little bit. It was something that was kind of new for me. And it's it's fairly unique depending on where you're at. But the, the gist is these four guys are currently charged. And the way that investigators put it together in the statement, and you can find this online if you look up Madison Brooks LSU. It's the it's going to be the number one trending trending thing for a while now. It says that, according to investigators, Carver, Case and Carver, he admitted that he and these other three people all went to Reggie's Bar near the LSU campus when they were drinking alcohol. Now, keep in mind, I just mentioned four people in addition to Madison Brooks. Uh, Mr. Washington is 18. The unidentified minor is 17. Everett Lee is 28. And Carver that they're talking about here is 18. And Madison is 19. Did you, did you catch all that? Yes. Um, that becomes important because I had to go, like, look everything up. I was like, did Louisiana – like? and I remember drinking underage. I remember, like, being able to do that. But there's a lot of people involved in this. They were at a bar drinking. 
Okay. And I, I get it. It's right next to a college campus, but you've got a 17 year old in there drinking. You've got an 18 year old in there drinking another 18 year old in there drinking and a 28 year old hanging out with them. I guess like that's the creepy character that Matthew McConaughey would play in the biopic that shows up on this. So Carver says they were all at the bar and they were drinking. He said that Madison leaves the bar with them and she could not even stand up. She was unable to speak. And when she did speak, she was slurring her words. The story that Carver tells is that, to the investigators, is that the 17-year-old and Madison are like walking together and the 17-year-old has his arms around Madison Brooks. He says that Brooks asked for a ride home. And, and this is all in the warrants and the probable cause stuff that's coming up about this. And Carver said that Washington... And the 17-year-old then ask Madison to have sex with them, and they agree. Where their car is parked, they, they have sex with this girl. They rape her. In their story, they have sex. In the cop's story, they rape her. Carver tells the investigators that he believes that Brooks was too drunk to understand that she was consenting to sex, and he hated it. They still arrest him for it. He said they they drive up to a nearby neighborhood and they drop her off out of the car. Basically, they kick her out of the car. And a passing car hits her, runs her over, and kills her. Now, that driver is sane, unlike the other people, and he was not he was not impaired. He immediately calls 911 and gets emergency services involved. This attorney comes out this morning and says that two of the people charged in, in the incident had video and they that it shows that no rape occurred. It's, it shows like so they're videotaping this while they're assaulting her, allegedly. That the, and they say that the uh, the video shows that she willfully gets into the car and that uh, she is telling them and talking about how she's been left behind. And the attorney says that it's not a rape. But when they go to test her toxicology, which is why it's just coming out now, it's a couple of weeks for toxicology to come through. Brooks had a blood alcohol level of 0.319%. They are arguing that she was saying she was not too intoxicated to give consent at 0.319. What do you think about that? Uh, she wasn't in a mindset where she could have given it or denied it. She didn't even know what consent was at that point. She wasn't even sure what planet Earth was. Right. And it gets really tricky because uh, now this has a tragic ending. And, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that happens here. But a lot of these situations, it doesn't change the fact that it is rape. But a lot of these situations, you've got a the other party that's also heavily intoxicated that's obtaining the consent. And so it's a very tricky kind of situation because it, it, and I don't know, like, I don't know how obvious the law is, nor do I know how widespread it is. I do know because we've done quite a bit of uh, research on Louisiana. I know that there, um, that's why it's, Third degree is where like where sex happens and uh, it consent is not 
uh, possible. It's not possible. Right. So even though they were saying like, I, I assume the video kind of proved that they had committed third degree rape. Right. Well, yeah. So <laughs> this, this attorney does a lot of disservices here. So he, he points out in his statement countering the press release that Brooks and the driver, and based on what he's saying, the driver is the 17 year old. So they apparently have a disagreement as they're driving away after these guys are alleged to have assaulted her. And based on this disagreement or argument that takes place, she, she tells them to stop the car. They stop the car. She gets out of the vehicle and says she's going to go get an Uber. He says that's all on video. I, I'm imagining that like it will be unintelligible when it finally makes its way to whatever court it gets to. But this guy's, he's, this guy's you know in advance advocating for whichever of these kids is his client. But according to the arrest warrants, the driver, and if it is a 17-year-old, it would be him, the driver believed the girl was too drunk to consent to anything. But this attorney, and I'm not naming him here because he's going to get his due and I'm not going to give him any extra time. He says that he believes the video evidence from inside the car will prove his clients are innocent and that bars selling alcohol to underage drinkers are to blame for the incident. Talk about passing the buck. That's uh, just a, that's just a, Splitting hair shy of blaming the victim. No, no, they're like he is literally like stepping up and blaming the victim, and I think it's going to bite him in the ass. I haven't, I have not seen any video on this. I don't know exactly what they're talking to about, but I have. Okay, look, I was a college student doing this shit at the time when we didn't have phone. The the underage drinking, like I did that. I went out with my friends and I did like figure out who's the most sober person to drive home. We were lucky that we could walk home, but like, I get it. Like I just didn't, my underage drinking times and my own shenanigans in college aren't documented the way this is with cameras capable of documenting what was going on. But I did have cameras around and I did have video cameras around with tapes. And we were, it was like right on the, uh, no, I wasn't even memory cards yet. It was just tapes at the time. You don't pick any, and tell me if I'm wrong on this. In this day and age, you don't pick up your phone typically and document mundane things when you're really drunk. You're documenting something insane that's happening. Well, I think that could be, I think that could vary, but I would okay. say that with the average, like they weren't taping that to like exhibit later that they got consent. I, it's, it's, this is so crazy. I don't, <laughs> these guys are screwed. Well, and so you have to take into consideration a few things. Um, defense attorneys are doing a job, right? So I assume no, they're not, they're not being charged with any sort of murder or anything, right? No, 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 no. It's not okay. And so anybody can think something. For example, in this case, uh, the underage kids involved in this case, and uh, I mean under 21, like so under the legal drinking age. Yeah. Is that everywhere? Is that in? That's that national. Right? That's national. I had to look okay. it up in the course of this. I was like, maybe it's changed. <laughs> well, you know what? I I don't because I for a split second I was like, well, Louisiana could be 18, but I it is 21 everywhere, right? Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, it's a given that 
uh, children under 21 should not be able to obtain alcohol in a public setting like a bar, right? Now, uh, you know, did they have fake IDs? Did the bar know they were serving underage kids? There's a lot of things that go into that element of the law that that establishment possibly broke, right? It has nothing to do with whether or not these kids raped this girl, right? Right. I mean, it does if you're, like, talking about the whole story, but it doesn't as far as, like, accountability, right? Correct. And so, you know, you can – and so that is an overarching type of – thought that would go through anybody's head that like saw this case, right? Like, well, the bar shouldn't have been serving them. Uh, They shouldn't have been drinking so much. Uh, And it goes on and on and on. Those are not, however, things that should be coming out of a defense attorney's mouth. Oh, I agree. (laughs) Like, I absolutely agree. And like, it's actually called simple rape, but it's way more complex than that. And this situation is so tragic already because you have a victim who has passed away here. Okay. So this, this would have been my approach. And and I'm being as honest as I can. When I say this, if I were to take a slimy defense approach to this, which I, that's not my thing. My approach would have been, you should consider the fact that these young men that you're plastering all over your newspapers and podcasts and everything, are not given the benefit of being able to confront their accuser. That's what I would have said because they're not charged with her murder. And that is a guarantee of, of the constitution is that we're able to confront our accuser. Well, right. And that's why the state has to be the, right. They, they have to bring the charges because otherwise, like if that were the case, uh, like anybody that has died, like, you know what? I don't know. I don't but know how that's going to play out. You definitely don't tell Wait a the second. public Wait that a they second. have video. I don't think they can charge them. That's why I brought Wait it up. Wait a second. Wait a second, though. Because, okay, they're not charged with her murder. Do they prosecute a rape case when the victim has died? <sighs> there is a... Okay, In so... Not a murder by them, at least. Could was, they connect it and somehow make it felony murder? That's that's where I was. That's where I was headed. I, I was wondering how their merger doctrine looked down there because, in theory, they might be able to do that. That might be what they're teeing it up for. But I don't like. I doubt that. So, okay, but this is really uh, this is. Uh, I know. I know. That's why I brought I it up. No, I want to know with so. By itself or with other, like, uh, equal or lesser crimes, otherwise, in other words, not murder, uh, do victims who have passed away, in this case, she was hit by a car, and so it was an accident. Because I assumed they were on a roadway and that the car that hit her was just driving like all the cars on the roadway would be driving. And in that type of situation, it isn't the driver's fault, right? Um, it's... It, it's the pedestrian somewhere they're not supposed to be, right? Just like right. if you were walking on the highway and you got hit by a car, like you're not supposed to be walking on the highway, right? Right. Um, and there, and no driver would reasonably expect to encounter a pedestrian that they hit on the highway, right? Because it's not made for that, and it's actually illegal, I'm pretty sure. And so it's not a case where, you know, it, the person wasn't trying to hit anybody. It just happened that way. So. Yeah. I am not familiar 
I don't think with a case where a rape has been alleged and then a death occurs like immediately after, like not by the hands of the rapist or the alleged rapist, and the case continues on. It it's complex and it depends on the jurisdiction. It's so there's a few there's there are some situations where um I think the way you and I would refer to it is that the state picks up the charges. That became so I don't know how it would work in this particular instance in this particular jurisdiction. I can tell you that there have been cases of domestic assaults that also include sexual elements or whatever, where when someone dies, the state continues to attempt to prosecute the lesser charges. I can also tell you, I've seen at least one case I saw personally where it failed. Um, but I don't know exactly how that would work in this instance. It's, it's weird, right? Um, it is weird. How did it come to light? Uh, did they just get interviewed and they just like told like, Oh, we were having sex with her in the car. Then we let her out. Cause she asked to be let out. And so, yeah. So I, I, something to that there effect, is a reason to not talk to the police without your attorney present. Well, and not with this attorney present. That's the other reason I didn't name him. I don't want to, you don't need this guy. In fact, like if you look this up and you see somebody saying some of the stuff this guy says, he may because, not have said that if they hadn't already given their story the, to the police though. I mean, cause you know, once you've given a statement, the defense attorney you then bring on has to work with what you've already said. So the way it looks like it goes down is she gets out of the car and gets hit by the other car who triggers the incident reporting, the other driver. His, his just says, oh, my God, I just hit someone with my car. Please send help. Those Did they people stop come at the scene? They're not charged with hit and run. so Or they're not charged with leaving the scene. Or I know. I'm sorry. Did the people, did the guys in the car that she just got out of, did they stop? I mean, for them to get these statements, it looks like they were taken <laughs> at the time that they were drinking. Go ahead. So yeah. My assumption is that everyone is drunk enough to know that something has happened, but maybe too drunk to know exactly what is going on or what liability they have. Uh, I will say that in their mug shots, they all look absolutely shocked to be there. They look so confused <laughs> about what was happening. Um, it, the, the gist of this is um, they may have like other problems. Like I've, I've seen issues where cases are dismissed because the victim has passed away and isn't available for confrontation. I would say that like, you know, that's not, it's definitely handled very carefully with the state being able to pick up certain charges, but you know, it's not like, it's not supposed to be an incentive to do something to the victim either. So, you know, that, that plays into all this. Okay. Anyways. So let's, let, well, hold on just a second though. Would it be different if, uh, let's say she didn't, if she got out of the car and she got in the Uber and went home and then uh, she somehow died a different way, right? Like overdosed at home or something? Well, yeah. I mean, or I don't want alcohol to, poisoning. Or I'm just saying anything really. And, but it wasn't because of a car accident or a car hitting her, right? Like would any of this have ever come up? I don't think so. Cases proceed with dead victims all the time. The problem here is, okay, she did not accuse them of anything she didn't make a statement the state doesn't have anything where she's the reporter the or made a statement about the situation at all and so 
I'm interested to see what happens. I've actually never had, I don't think I've ever encountered something like this before. Um, I haven't. That's why I brought it up. I wouldn't have brought it up if it was like everyday stuff. And I, um, because, and you know what? I didn't even think of it. The fact that, because in my mind, I'm just thinking, well, this is a victim who died, right? Yeah, yeah. But really her death, um, it's, you know, it doesn't sound like they're going to be charged with murder. I mean, if they could link it, they probably already would have. And the other thing is like, how do you do that without bringing the other driver into it, right? He, they, whoever the other driver was, they, I feel like they didn't do anything wrong here. They stopped, they called the police, and this is what ensued, right? Yeah. It, it is really interesting. <laughs> well, there, some of the coverage that was going on, like I pulled up The Advocate just to see what they were saying. They took an interesting angle. They were talking about the ripples and the shock waves happening. So the bar lost its liquor license. They... It was an emergency suspension that was issued by the Louisiana Office of Alcohol and Tobacco Control. Um, they considered it a threat to public safety. The bar's attorney, like, and when I the when I say I want to like clarify, we're not talking about the bar, like the place where lawyers go to get certified. We're talking about the bar that these kids were at drinking. The bar's attorney, he immediately came out and said that they were cooperating. And there's a lot of talk in here about it having ripple effects far beyond um, campuses where uh, it's this level of drinking and people are underage and something like this happens. And I, I agree. Uh, unfortunately, this is not new. What is new and unique about this is that she got out from basically this situation that while it's currently charged as third degree rape or simple rape, I'm I, I know um, Louisiana prosecutors well, and I promise you by the time this all ends, this will be a first degree rape charge. Um, so I'm just going to throw that out there that that's definitely going to happen. I don't know if it'll stick. I'm just telling you that is what they will do with it. Um, and I'm interested to see how that uh, works with the confrontation clause, but whatever. Well, I think that's <laughs> going to be an interesting view. And I hope to God that this guy did honestly, like, dude, why would you give that video to investigators? And I'm like, I don't like, I'm torn. Like, why would you do that? Bring it up at trial. If you want, if you feel like it helps your well, clients. I think but, he was trying to get them out of the charge. Like, I, I think well, that's the whole point. But one thing you have to consider is like, they let her out of the vehicle, according to the story, because she asked to get out, right? So they're right. going along with what she wants here, right? Yeah. Um, even though it's a bad idea to get out of the vehicle where you're going to get hit by a car, which is what happened. So there's factors here that would mitigate the path that they were consciously committing a crime, right? Like, for example, letting the victim go when she asked to be let go. Yeah. Um, and again, the culpability is very tricky when you're talking about uh, both sides of a sexual assault being intoxicated. It doesn't mean that it's not a rape. It just, you have to wonder like, well, did they realize they were committing a crime? Like, how does that work as far as, you know, because you're, even if you're drunk, you're still responsible for your actions, right? Yes. And that's one of the biggest things you could take away from this is uh, it's probably not a great idea to be so out of control that, you know, you could mistake consent from someone who 
can't consent or whatever, you know, whatever the takeaway would be. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's going to spark some debates. I don't know how this is going to shake out legally, but it will be interesting to sort of follow it and see what happens. Um, I do feel awful for her friends and family because that is an absolutely horrible way to go viral. It's a horrible way to, for your life to end. And there's so many tragic things about that poor girl situation. Um, I think that you, so you think that they'll end up being charged with um, first degree rape. And do you think the felony murder will be concocted in there? I, so I, I know enough about Louisiana to know that they will absolutely 100% have an attempt like the prosecutors and, you know, it's, I think this is East Baton Rouge area. So that parish, they will definitely attempt to upgrade the charges. Uh, one, I don't know how felony murder actually works in Louisiana, like in current laws. I did not look that up before the show today. Um, I'm actually like mixing this up with some of the other things that we're talking about today um, in terms of like, that's why we talked about her. But I don't know. Um, how the merger doctrine applies there. I would have to like do a deeper dive uh, than I have done. Um, well, rape would serve if, if it does apply, like it kind of standardly does, which I don't know, but like when you think of felony murder, it's uh, somebody that dies there, like because somebody else is committing a felony, right? Uh, during the time that they're committing the felony. Uh, right. I don't know. I don't know if that's would apply or not. I would say that, um, you know, depending on what the video evidence is, if she jumped out of the car to avoid further assault, right, that becomes a whole different thing. It doesn't sound like that's a story that's being portrayed, though. Sounds well, like she got out because she wanted to. Yeah. My memory of the felony murder rule down there is that it exists, but it's maybe complex. Uh, I will look it up if this becomes more than it is, and, and we will cover it separately. Because I have an interest in felony murder. Which, well, know. sure. And so I think um, I think that what will end up happening is I, I really think that the confrontation clause is going to prohibit their uh, the uh, it may not. But uh, at least on rape, unless they can somehow connect it with murder. Um, but I do think that they'll end up taking a plea agreement to some sort of low level felony. And that'll be kind of how that ends up happening. And that's in like, I think the reason that would be done is like in the interest of like punishing them, but also uh, not violating their constitutional rights, which that's, you know, where the confrontational clause comes in. I don't think that these guys are going to be like, we're innocent, right? Um, no, in fact, like most of what I've seen so far seems to be, uh, I guess, I'm not really sure. Like that's the answer that so, all of them have given to everything. Right. And so, you know, I think it will be pled out to like some sort of like, I don't even know what it might be, but it's going to end up being something that doesn't quite get to rape. But it's also like, you know, you committed a serious crime. And uh, there's a number of things like, I don't know, driving while intoxicated crosses my mind, at least for one of them, right? Well, the, um, I mean, this is absolutely, like, let's just go ahead and be clear. This is a sexual assault. And depending on the act committed during the assault, this is probably a uh, third degree rape. Oh, yeah. Well, no, no question. Um, I And I'm not saying anything to undermine the actual activity that occurred. I'm saying how I think this parallel road in the judicial system yeah. no, no, is I know. going to play itself out because they've levied these charges, 
right? Yeah. Um, and like to the point they're charged, and I think at least a couple of them are out on bail. We don't know what's happening with the minor. But I'm just saying that I think the solution here to avoid violating their right to confrontation, uh, because they can't confront her, she's not with us anymore, but it's not at this point, it doesn't have anything to do with any of their behavior, right? According yeah. to the law, according to what they're charged with. So I think what will end up happening is they'll end up be pleading out to something lesser, um, but just to, you know, get them punished and kind of skirting around it. Uh, that the ending plea, the punishment, unfortunately, lots of times has absolutely nothing to do with what actually occurred. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, so that the, one of the reasons that we've been covering these serial things that we're covering so far is I wanted to find a case where like the punishment fit the crime and we could learn a lot from that case. And this is interesting. Do you do you mind if I move more towards serial people for the rest for can I move to the next topic or you want to keep talking about this one? No, I'm good. Okay. So Okay, this is still more news, and I apologize because I know I'm getting long in the tooth, but it's interesting. Richland County, South Carolina, and this is going back to November of 2021, because this is what I was really researching when Madison's case came across my feed. They have caught a serial rapist who does quite a bit of, uh, of something I was wondering about, and that is like when you have a guy like Robert Long or some of the other people we've talked about that are sort of classified ad rapists. Um, like what would, not a murderer, but what would just a rapist in modern times using modern technology look like? And this guy appears to be it. His name is Antonius Randolph. And his, he's 29 years old. He was arrested in Richland County, uh, South Carolina. So Leon Lott, who's the sheriff down there, uh, in several sources, you can find this on Law and Crime, you can find this in the local news, they are saying that this guy has been active for over a year, almost two years. Lott said during a January press conference that we've taken a monster off of the streets, our streets. My prayer is that he is not going to see daylight again, and I don't think he will. We're going to continue to put charges on him for everything we can. There's one place he needs to stay for the rest of his life, and that is in prison. He does not need to be on the streets again. So the sheriff says that the first attack is believed to have taken place in November of 2021 when a woman called and said a man had attacked her. The second attack that is known uh, is August of 2022 when Randolph uh, allegedly sexually assaulted a woman he met on a dating app at gunpoint. From there, the frequency of the attacks picked up, and two of the victims say that they were sexually assaulted by a man they met through a dating app in December of 2021. Uh, the next victim is January of 2022. Initially, investigators did not realize that all the attacks were connected, but several months after the initial assault, they were, they were working with the same nurses that had treated the victims and a victim advocacy group down there called Pathways to Healing. And Sheriff Lott says that investigators started to realize that they probably had a serial rapist on uh, their hands. Um, so this guy, 
was using dating apps to get them to come to a location. And he was wearing masks and disguises. Sometimes he had a gun. Sometimes he had a knife. Uh, Forensically, this stuff is all linked now. And at the time of his arrest, uh, Mr. Randolph was allegedly in possession of a mask, a knife, and a sex toy that fit the information that the investigators had gotten from the previous sexual assaults. But this guy, he says he wasn't going to be stopped until they stopped him. Um, They do have an all call out um, basically saying, if you are in the South Carolina, particularly Richland County, but surrounding areas there too, if you have been assaulted by, uh, someone that you met on a dating app to please come forward and you can do so through the pathways to healing 24 hour hotline. That number is 803-771-7273. Uh, you can hit the back 15 seconds if you need to hear that again. But the idea is, um, they've charged this guy with many multiple, uh, felonies for first degree criminal sexual conduct, kidnapping, first degree assault and battery, uh, Possessions of a weapon during a violent crime. What do you think his bond was? Um, a million dollars. Two hundred grand. Hmm, that's it, huh? Yep. Oh well, you know, but is he out? I don't think so. I think he's being. So I do think that that's taken into consideration. Uh, like I think sometimes they just assess what is just out of reach and depending on what's going on in this guy's life. Cause what would that take? $200,000 would be, they would have to have like 20 grand cash or some property that's worth like $200,000. Right. Correct. Based on that, they probably, I mean, just depending on this guy's background, that could be very well be the equivalent of a million dollars. Right. I mean, yeah. Uh, and you know, they do assess all that when you're brought in and they want, uh, the, the point of bail isn't punitive because you haven't been convicted. It's just a guarantee that you show. Yeah. And so, uh, that could be why, uh, they, they just want it right out of reach. That's this is going to be a fascinating case. He's got dead eyes too. Uh, I pulled up his mugshot. He has dead eyes. Those people always make me wonder, like, what have they been up to? Right. That, if we wanted to look and see, like, what would Robert Long be doing if he were, like, active in 2021, 2022, 2023? It might look a little bit like what Mr. Randolph is doing there. We were coming back around to Robert Long one last time because I want to talk about where we left off. We'd established that he was an organized what I would call a lust killer. And we sort of talked about like why that was the case. And we talked a little bit about uh, organized versus disorganized. And we talked a lot about just his general background and his, his history. He had two major problems that led to him being arrested. So he gets arrested outside of a movie theater, November 16th, 1984. And he's charged with sexual battery and kidnapping. He signs a, a formal Miranda waiver and he gets questioned. So the detectives get a confession for him in one case, and their questioning ends up focusing on a series of unsolved sexual battery homicides in the Tampa Bay area. And um, as they start to question Robert Long about 
the murders, he replies that he'd rather not answer that. They continue the interrogation. They hand long photographs of the various murder victims. And at that point, Long stated that the complexion of things sure have changed since you came back into the room. I think I might need an attorney. Uh, No attorney was provided and Long eventually confessed to eight murders in Hillsborough County and one murder in Pasco County. Uh, And a lot of the forensic evidence we talked about along the way, we talked about different types of clothing and carpet fibers and there were semen and there were ligature marks. There were uh, different types of knots and this rope that he carried with him in his rape kit. All those things that we sort of talked about along the way, they ultimately do him in. But the thing that did him in the most were something that like we're going to get into a little more this season. And that is some of the victims survived. One of the victims that survived, and I can't remember if I mentioned her here, but it was a, it was a 33 year old woman that he attacked in her home. Her name was Linda for purposes of this. I think she's in the mainstream media talking about this, but like, I don't want to, I don't want to like dwell on that too much. I do think what she did was pretty heroic and ending up, uh, helping to identify him. But the the biggest problem that um, Mr. Long had is in the early hours of November the 3rd, 1984, he abducted a 17-year-old girl who was riding her bicycle home from work. He blindfolded her and he took her to his house. While she was there, he repeatedly raped her. While she was blindfolded, this 17-year-old girl touched everything in her reach within his home that she possibly could. Her thinking was she thought she was going to die and she wanted her fingerprints to be all over whatever location she was in, which turned out to be Robert Long's house. But after 26 hours, Robert Long released this girl And she was able to provide information to investigators on his home, his car, and a period of time where she heard him use an ATM. This led to police identifying him before that arrest on November 16th, 1984. Honestly, a lot of stuff that went on with him would be questionable and I feel like a good defense attorney today could have made hay of some of it. He had just done so much stuff in such a short period of time that there was really no way for him to completely come away scot-free. But I feel like there were Miranda violations. There's like a lot of junk science in his trial, actually. I'm going to come back to Lisa in just a second, and we're going to talk about her, and that's how we're going to close out this episode. But what I do want to say is that On September 24th of 1985, Robert Long is convicted of pretty much everything here. Now, that's the last one, but there are multiple trials along the way. And that's the big one, I should say, rather than the last one. Ultimately, on April 15th, 1985, he's convicted of a rape. And then a little later in April 1985, he's convicted of one of the first murders, which was Virginia Johnson. He starts pleading guilty to murders September 24th of 1985, which that was eight of the Hillsborough County, Florida murders. And then on July 25th of 1986, he was convicted in the murder of Michelle Sims, who was an earlier victim. 
ultimately he is sentenced to death uh, on July 25th of 1986. Uh, he goes to prison. He spends a pretty good deal of time in prison. The last uh, like wrap up for his profile that had been put together, uh, it just describes what I just said, which is the, the date he was arrested and the dates he was convicted. And then the sentence was death by electrocution. He did get a life sentence for uh, Michelle Sims case, but he was sentenced to death by electrocution. And at the time they wrote this, it says, has the killer been executed? Yes. The answer was no. And it said name and state of prison. He was imprisoned in union correctional institution in Rayford, Florida. Uh, it says, has the killer committed suicide and says no, but he reports that he contemplated it while in prison. Was the killer killed in prison? It says no. And it says date of death, not applicable. However, that's not true anymore. He does have a date of death. He was executed, but not by electrocution. He was executed by lethal injection on May 23rd of 2019. And all I can say to that is uh, <laughs> goodbye. Um, okay. So I know I drug everybody along here. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about Lisa because like I feel like her story is very important in all of this. Um, she was able to provide things that in my mind, one of the importance importances among many of the importances of a surviving victim is their ability to provide investigators with information that will, in, in a lot of instances, it will reveal if that killer is being truthful if that makes sense. Like they can hold the killer accountable to some degree because they can see what he says related to, you know, what was going on with her, whether it's accurate information or not. I would agree with that. I don't actually think that there are a lot of instances where they have that opportunity, right? Correct. Yeah. And that's one of the, that's one of the unique things about this season is some of the stuff we're talking about here really only happens in one or two places in the annals of uh, like serial killer lore or history. In this instance, there are two surviving victims. One was among his classified ads, rape victims with Lyndon. And the other was Lisa McVeigh, who is basically the end of his spree, if that makes sense. Like it's sort of like the last, uh, like hoorah of what he had been doing of all these terrible things. Right. And my impression was that there's not a terribly accurate accounting of all of his uh, uh, sexual assaults that did not result in murder. No, there's not. There's a, there's a tally where, so basically what they did was they took Hillsborough, Pasco and Pinellas. And I think Tampa got involved and, um, the FDLE and the FBI, they went through and tried to find as many matching reported rapes during the time he was active before he graduated to being basically a, a serial killer. They, so they documented the earliest ones in 1981 in Fort Lauderdale and uh, Ocala, uh, Miami and Dade County. So they were able to establish that, you know, going backwards, they could see where he had, a, had gone through these different newspaper classified ads, including the penny saver. And he would go and see something at his house and he would take his kit with him. And if the victim was appropriate, 
he would rape them. They put that number at a firm 50, but acknowledge that there's flexibility in that because of the nature of how sexual assaults are and are not reported, meaning by the victims and sometimes even by the law enforcement agency. If you get into a more rural area, that may not make it into your numbers in a way that like you realize it's happened. Right. But he's a pretty prolific rapist. Correct. Right. And uh, I guess what I was thinking was with Lisa, uh, I don't, I mean, she was his last victim, right? At least, well, I, can't, I mean, she ends up surviving, right? We don't know, like, uh, how many sexual assaults he committed, but we do know that in a very condensed period of time leading up to when Lisa ultimately was kidnapped and assaulted and then she was released, most of his victims were murdered. Correct. Uh, not a whole lot of them were simply sexually assaulted. Um, she was more than likely going to be murdered. Well, I mean, okay. So I think I disagree a little bit with that statement, but I might be misunderstanding. So this is what I'm going to say. If he's got 50 rapes and 10 murders, then most of his victims were sexually assaulted and only a few of them were murdered. Okay. I'm sorry. I think I must have misstated something. Um, It sounded like you said most of his victims were going to be murdered. Just in like, okay, so he's got this extended period of time where he's doing yes. these sexual assaults. And then to me, it escalates this one time, right, with his yeah. very first murder victim. And then from that point forward, his we don't hear a whole lot about sexual assaults occurring that aren't a body being found. Correct. Okay. That's what I mean uh, by that. And so while he did have like 50 sexual assaults, the majority of the ones that left a victim behind that was alive, they occurred before this escalation. Correct. Okay. And so in, it was actually like a really good thing that uh, he got caught when he did, because he wasn't going to stop. I don't think. Um, No, no, he was going to get worse. You know, at a point, he went from, which a rapist is a terrible thing. Um, it went from he was a rapist to now he's this murderer. And then it's like by the grace of God uh, that he encountered this victim, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in my opinion, and I don't know if I'm right about this, but in my opinion, what he was doing with picking the higher risk victims to start with and kind of ramping up to Lisa, for lack of a better word, um, ramping up is the phrase that pops in my head. I think eventually he would have been figuring out a more sophisticated method to get the victims that he potentially wanted. Um, I don't, I think when we talk about the different victims that he killed, I think he was starting with people that were easily accessible. It's almost kind of lazy murders. If that makes sense. He was picking people that were in positions that it was easy and like a, air quotes around that for him to do it whether he was dehumanizing them or is because of their accessibility or whatever i've always thought though and i could be wrong about this my impression is the murder came in a uh, a second place position uh to the rape like so he was always this rapist right and so i you know he he had that brief stint where he was ordered to pay like for the car damages, even though he did assault somebody like 
we kind of talked about right. that in an yeah. earlier episode. But like other than that, like for the most part, his, his behavior went unchecked, right? It did, um, yeah. And so I always felt like before his escalation, we don't entirely know. I do think um, the you know the classified ad situation was different than uh, when he was preying on the more vulnerable, which would be sex workers, right? Uh, I don't the know. Risk so, did that cor- Do you think that the sexual assaults correlated with that as well, or do you think that once he he had experienced murdering one of his sexual assault victims that he was then planning like, okay, I'm going to assault this woman and then kill her. When we first started looking at him for the purposes of recording here, I sort of posited that he might be doing it for the perspective of like killing witnesses or like leaving no eyes behind type thing. I don't think that anymore. And um, it took me a while to get back to what I had thought about this guy. Cause it's been a while since I've looked at him. I mean, he, I, he popped back into my head briefly when they executed him, but I hadn't thought about him for a long time before that. I had thought more about like Lisa and like, you know, what it must be like to survive something like that. But so here's what I think happened. I don't think he liked to murder women. I think he liked to rape women. And I think that he probably, and we, I've sort of touched on this and like some of the other stuff that we've talked about. I think he had trouble getting off like on just the rape after a while and where he was trying to settle was he really liked the control of strangulation. It is the thing that excited him the most and made him get off is when he was able to like, like control the breathing to some degree of these women. And I think he went through a period because it's a spree like this. I think he went through a period where he was only getting off when they took their last gasp. I think that's what it was. Right, and but he wouldn't have reverted at that point, right? No, I don't think he reverted. I think like, okay, you know, I think something about what Lisa did fucked with them. You know, we've talked about like how killers like run into these problems. With the hammer, it was the girl that like he suddenly had a relationship with. Remember, like he was, he he was like, yeah, he was like, oh my gosh, I was going to do this, but now I'm living with you, you know, and in his mind, I think it messed it up for him where he went out and like had this terrible psychological response to it. So here's, here's what's interesting about Lisa McVeigh and like, she's, she is not the end of this episode, but she's probably the most important part about this episode. Um, She's certainly a huge and important part of this story. Now she's 17 years old when this happens and she has pretty candidly spoken um, since then in a lot of ways And she has said that she was a victim of abuse even before her abduction. She had been put in situations by family members early on where she was surrounded by people with alcohol and substance abuse problems. She ended up moving in to help take care of her grandmother at the age of 14. She had been in and out of foster care. She had been sexually abused at home. Um, Her grandmother had a boyfriend who would put a gun to her head and molest her. Um, So she was not unaware of abusive situations. She used that experience in her situation in November of 1984 to assist her. On November 3rd, 1984, she's riding her bicycle to her grandmother's house and Long snatches her 
She didn't know it was long. She didn't know who he was. She didn't know anything about him. But while she's there with this guy, first of all, she's there and held captive. I, I, I think I said 26 hours. I think that's the amount of time that was like the total ordeal, which sounds terrifying to me. But during her captivity with him, she role-played. She figured out that in order to survive, she could offer to be his secret girlfriend. And Lung bought it, which he somehow he had some level of sympathy for her. Uh, she, she told him some lies, but among those were that she would be a secret girlfriend, that she had an ill parent, which was not exactly a lie, but she was the only child and she was taking care of him. And basically she talked him into letting her go from a remote location where she couldn't know anything about him, but maybe they could meet up again. He takes her out. Uh, he blindfolds her. He drops her off and, you know, explains that he's leaving, but she's got to wait five minutes to take the blindfold off. And he leaves, but he leaves her alive um, because of like, like she how humanized far she herself. Yeah. She made herself human. We've, we've, we've heard this from different serial killers over the years that it once it takes a turn. Once somebody humanizes themselves, it gets very difficult to harm them. Right. And so because of her, her life experience, right. With having, she didn't, she wasn't necessarily, uh, unaware of, you know, bad situations, people treating her badly. Uh, she had experienced it. And so it wasn't shocking to her. She was also young, very young. And I think that that's what might've kept her from being as defensive as I imagine some of the other victims probably were. Yeah. Um, and that can really catch someone off guard. If well, it ties not- to something you've said over multiple episodes. You felt like some of these guys, particularly uh, Robert Long, when it, like some of the differences in living or dying here was how they interacted and responded to him. Right. And I wonder, I, I do think that, especially the first murder, I think that that was like very, uh, it was a very contentious situation. And then the one female that was shot, I think that that sort of piqued the, uh, like his frustration a little bit, uh, because that was an extreme measure to take. Right. And he didn't get anything out of that except like it was a pain because he didn't accomplish what his little expedition, were supposed to accomplish for him, which would be, you know, to take a woman and assault her. And then it escalated to murdering her as well. And then dumping her body. And in this case, like it got so out of hand that he ended up just shooting her. Like, right. I mean, right. And so it was a waste, like to him, even it was a waste. Uh, All of it was a waste as far as like normal human beings are concerned. Right. Yeah. But um, I do think that uh, she, uh, she was a very smart girl, Lisa was. I think that uh, just because we have that account of what she said uh, happened, right, which we have no reason to doubt it, it brings to mind, at least to me, that, you know, our initial response, especially, you know, older 
women who have life experience, like we're not just going to be a shrinking violet and accept what's happening to us. We're going to fight back and that can infuriate the situation more. Right. Absolutely. Um, And so I think that she had several things on her side there and she really was able to present that to him in a way that ultimately not only did he allow her to live, she gets him caught Yeah, she does. So what happens after he releases her and he makes his escape or whatever you want to call it is she gets home. And when she gets home, her grandmother's boyfriend beats her and he interrogates her for multiple hours about where she had been and what had she been doing for the last 24 to 28 hours. But her account remained consistent and someone made a decision to call the police. Um, I've never tracked down exactly who that is, but the, the police are called. Lisa... Uh, she had memorized a lot of details about what had happened to her. And again, I'm going to mention this again, but she left her fingerprints everywhere in Long's bathroom and bedroom to help police identify her in the event of her death. And that ends up being something that helps to uh, convict him. Uh, But with her description of Long and Long's car and, and, where she was when she was abducted and other details about the route that they had taken, including like her remembering the ATM and how they got to this remote location. Police were able to track down long and arrest him, and then connect him to other crimes. They ran a surveillance operation on him and they ended up arresting him. And the ultimate arrest like the, or the, the initial arrest was for uh, the sexual assault and kidnapping of Lisa McVeigh. And I will say, um, in case people are wondering about this, uh, like what happens to people in this situation, here's the nutshell version. In the 90s, she started working at the Parks and Rec Department down in Hillsborough County, Florida, and they had a break-in to their back offices. And one of the sheriff's deputies who came to the scene said, you ever thought about being a cop? So in 1999, she ended up transferring to the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office. She became a dispatcher, then a reserve deputy. And then she put herself through the police academy and she was deputized in 2004. She works in the same department that found and arrested Robert Long. Um, She specializes in sex crimes and crimes against children. And she has worked as a middle school resource officer. And she has several versions of her story uh, that have been told in documentary and uh, dramatization forms and in books. Uh, she's a, she's one of the primary voices in Joy Wellman's uh, book, Smoldering Embers. And Long, as well as uh, Linda Nuttall. So uh, when Long gets executed, uh, Linda Nuttall and Lisa McVeigh were present for his execution. And I thought that was a pretty fitting end to his time on earth. He was actually one of uh, the reasons that I previewed. Now he did get executed in 2019, but he was one of the cases that I actually formed my, like they get sentenced to sit on death row opinions about. Cause he'd been there so long. Yeah. Because he had said, I mean, we didn't know. I didn't know when I, Uh, like I knew about this case and the fact that he was sentenced to death and not put to death before he was executed. Right. Yeah. Um, And so that was a really long time for him to be sitting on death row. Oh yeah. 
And I actually don't, I haven't ever looked in. In fact, before we covered this case, I didn't realize he had been executed. So I thought he was just still one of those guys sitting on death row, but that's not the case. He was executed. I don't know what the difference was um, in why he finally was executed uh, as opposed to... He the just time. ran out of things that would keep his death warrant got signed and ran out of things that would keep him alive. Well, right. And you know, that varies so much. Um, it really does. From state to state, from case to case, uh, there are certain governors that will not sign death warrants. And so that ends up being like a moratorium, right? Yeah. Um, and there's so many things at play there, but like he, he, I don't know exactly what, you know, the difference is, I mean, at any point in time after he was sentenced, he could have been executed, right? And yeah. so I don't know what the nuances of why it ended up finally happening in 2019 were. It did end up being carried out. Uh, and essentially, I, you know, like you said, goodbye, you know, good riddance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's a number of things that have gone on in Florida uh, over the years where, the rules have changed a little bit in the legal process. At one point in time, uh, in Hearst versus Florida, which I think was maybe 2013 or 14, the Supreme Court actually struck down part of Florida's death penalty law, which made it... So they basically said, like, a judge can't be the one to determine the aggravating factors in a death sentence. The ruling was something like, I, th I think it violated the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial. So the jury actually was decided to have to be a part of the sentencing there. So anyone who had been sentenced by a non-unanimous jury vote from like 2000 to like 2013, like they were affected by that. So there was a lot of like constant rumblings about death penalty in Florida. And one of the biggest things there was the use of the electric chair. So what's weird about, if you, you have to think about the timing of these people. And I mentioned this when we started this case, but I'll mention it again here so that you can understand what's happening. Robert Long, okay, would you agree he is, like what level do you put him on when you think of like serial killers? Uh, He's not quite a Bundy, right? I mean... Uh, only to the extent that he he seemed to be at least a little relieved and remorseful when he was finally caught. And so it's different than Bundy because Bundy was never uh, – anything he did was self-serving, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, this guy is a pretty uh, prolific uh, serial killer. He's a bad guy, right? The What led him there, I think, would – Ah, it might be similar to Bundy, but to me, he's a pretty bad guy. Uh, what do you you know, he's definitely is. He's horrible. I'm not. I was just wondering. I guess I was thinking in terms of. Um, I ask you, do you think Harvey the Hammer influenced Bundy? And I pointed out in an earlier episode in these in this Genesis series, where Bundy would have been in the time seeing the headlines related to those crimes. Does that make sense? Right. Mm hmm. Okay, so do you think that Robert Long was influenced at all by Ted Bundy? So, I don't. 
for perspective, uh, Bundy would have been sentenced to die in Florida in basically 79 and 80, I think. Right. Um, I don't, I don't think that it ever occurred to Robert Long that he was going to be be a a killer. No, I don't think he thought he was going to be a killer until he was a killer. That's, that is what I think is the difference in the two. And I think that um, he was just uh, so out of control and so unchecked and he, he, he couldn't figure out what to do with himself. Right. Uh, Which is sort of, I mean, Bundy was the same way, but like this guy, he had, you know, taken several career paths. He lacked the ability to um, pick up on certain social cues, according to like some of the information I read about him, like in his work life, he was doing inappropriate things and that's why he would get fired. Right. And so he's like qualified to do these like specific technical work, like an electrician or an x-ray tech. And so that takes some, you know, know-how to do, but then he couldn't keep his pants on or, I mean, there was a lot of things that he was doing weird. And so he definitely had issues, but I think he was just so um, out of control and unchecked that uh, his behavior was just what he was doing. I don't think that he sat and like planned it. Um, I don't even think that beyond the fact that this is what was occurring, I don't think that he put a whole lot of thought into it uh, once he did start murdering, even probably when he was just assaulting women, he just went and did it. Like it was just as much part of his day as like cracking open a beer when he got home or whatever, you know? Yeah. And it kind so of seems it, that way. Yeah. It, it was, it was, it, and it, and some parts of that make him more normal, but other parts of that make him terrifying. Right. Well, so there's a five-year difference in roughly five years in the last like death sentence bestowed upon Bundy. Five years or six years? I don't know. It's a pretty small, narrow window of time where Bundy is sentenced to death and then Bundy is executed by 1989. So this guy is sentenced to death by 86 but he's not executed till 2019. I think most of that was arguments over like there was a series of executions in the nineties where they were botched or they were problematic and it caused a lot of like riffraff going on there. Now, one of the things he does have in common with Bundy is the there are people to tell stories about him after he's gone because his wife, um, she talks about him. At least one of his kids I've heard talk about him. And then his surviving victim talks about him. So he does have that in common with Bundy, I guess. Other than that, I think they just line up timing-wise. But you're right. I don't think this guy thought he was a murderer, whereas Bundy was living for the murder. Right. And uh, he was, like, specifically, like, trying to not get caught. Uh, I don't know that... uh, Robert Long ever thought to himself, like, this is behavior that's going to result in me getting caught. In fact, I believe, and I can't source it right at this moment, but I believe after he initially let Lisa go and she had, she had peeked out of her blindfold and, you know, she had a description of his vehicle. Yes. Yes. And, 
and she, uh, they, and that's what they went off of to kind of try and track whoever did this to her down, right? Yes. Um, and they hadn't initially, I don't think, linked everything. Uh, it no, they hadn't. Bit. Yeah, it took it, it took a while because um, it was a you know kidnapping. In the other cases, they were looking at women who had been uh, abducted and assaulted and dumped. And so here you've got a young girl who doesn't fit that the other criteria that they were seeing, but she gives them the description and he made uh, a statement to somebody or somebody assessed from a statement he made that he was actually relieved when he was being questioned because he thought he was for sure he had been caught and then they let him go. Oh yes. Okay. And he and so he was actually like really surprised because and you know it ends up coming full circle where they do actually take him into custody. He is charged and everything. But he like Bundy would have done anything he possibly could to continue his rampage, right? Yeah. Uh this guy never even realized he was on a rampage. He did everything he did. I don't think it ever crossed his mind. About, you know, if he was going to be caught or not. Because if you look at um, all the the victims and then the body dumps, he, he wasn't taking extreme measures to uh, distance himself, right? It was just the course of what he was doing. Yeah, it was um, almost the course of convenience. Right. And so, and that is, and, you know, he didn't get away with it for very long, but I don't think he was ever playing the long game. I think that he was giving in to all the damage that had been done to him. And I think he really, I think that Lisa made him realize like how terrible he was being. And he was just relieved until they let him go. But, and you know, I, there's no definitive answer on whether or not there are any more victims after that. I don't know how much time went by. There's a whole it's bunch a, of stuff it's there. Like two weeks or less. Right. And to put together the first part of it. And so, you know, it's not super clear. Uh, it is, you know, a late or mid eighties case. And so it has been a while, but I guess maybe uh, the, dis- but Bundy was put to death in 89. Yeah, right? he was put. Yeah, he was put to death in '89. So if you just look at it, it was about ten years at the time. So Bundy's like convicted and everything between '70 and '80. He gets like multiple death sentences down there. I think the last one is, or maybe 1980-ish. So figured he, nine years later, he's executed. Um, if you took that and you said, okay, '86 is when the sentence comes down on Robert long that would put it around 95 that he's supposed to be executed. But the problems that they were having down there started in 1990 and they continued all the way to 1999. They had these executions that were going on and you know how like death penalty proponents and opponents get very active in court at different times. This was a time when there was a lot of, court motions being filed that the electric chair was inhumane and when they couldn't really get that to go through as the electric chair being inhumane they started pointing out like jesse tafero pedro medina alan lee davis and saying oh my god like they're like torturing these people and they called it cruel and unusual punishment because the electrocution did not go well in those instances. And they had about six or seven of them where like people had pulled them out and said, 
this is not allowed. And we've seen this happen more recently with lethal injection. I don't know if you remember, but there was a moratorium because the way that they were putting the drugs together was deemed to be cruel and unusual punishment. Right, because it uh, it wasn't acting as quickly and effectively as the presumption was that yeah. they would. Like it was, so it was uh, prolonging the suffering, which, you know, the people who are involved in an execution, they are just uh, vessels of the state carrying out the state's Correct. business. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it is going to take somebody saying, well, look, I'm a vessel of the state carrying out the state's business, but this isn't how it's supposed to go. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, that did come into, to, in to, uh, at least mainstream media attention. And so they did, uh, I think they switched the, the drugs use cause, now it's a matter of basically just giving something to relax them and then something to just stop their breathing. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I think that the problem was like they were relaxed, but then like they kind of agonized on and on before their breathing stopped. Um, and so that would be terrible. And, um, it, uh, it, I, I don't really have an opinion one way or the other about that, but I do find it interesting. I assume at some point there has uh, electric um, electric chair execution been uh, done away with worldwide, uh, uh, nationwide. Uh, right. Yeah. If I remember correctly. Last year, at some point, I sort of was like scrolling past it. I want to say there's five or six places you can still be executed by the electric chair. Please don't. No, yeah, I don't. I don't actually know, but what I do know is that Ted Bundy was electrocuted um, in Old Sparky in Florida. That's how he died, right? And there's a very graphic description of how he died. If you ever look it up, Um, it included, you know, uh, it's it can be like slightly gratifying if you have sort of a deep grudge against terrible serial killers because he did, uh, you know, they shaved his head and like he had to be basically carried. He, so he had lost all of that charisma and all that like fortitude that made him one of the most horrifying serial killers to have been in American history. Right. He lost all that as he was on his way to the electric chair. And, um, I have, uh, I was very young when that happened, but I remember the, some of the coverage leading up to it. Oh, I remember the crowd. I thought to myself as a small child, like it resonated with me what was happening because, you know, obviously even today, but, um, I, I do see where like the electric chair is, I mean, I don't know that it's been deemed cruel and unusual, Anything that is putting someone to death that has gone through the process, it should be the most humane way possible. That's what separates the system from just criminals, right? Yeah. Um, I do think that the lethal injection is, you know, the way to go. I would, I haven't heard of somebody being um, put to death by the electric chair in a long time. And Bobby Joe Long was specifically sentenced to die. Uh, to the death penalty, and he was to be put to death by an electric chair. So I assume at some point they converted all those. Uh, they made it optional. That goes back to that legal uh, wrangling that I was discussing, that that sort of happened. Um, I did 
I did have one last thought on this stuff. I don't know if you have more, but um, at one point I heard his daughter say, and I know it was audio. I don't know where it came from, but I heard his daughter say in some snippet that uh, Robert Long was a cousin of Henry Lucas. Have you heard this? I did. Um, I heard that uh, they were distant cousins and it, um, I think it was just a way of attracting attention to him. I'm not sure. I actually, I, I, I didn't verify it anywhere, um, but I did see that. I just heard her saying it. I, I haven't verified it beyond the fact that I heard her say it. But I do think that's really interesting because um, he could be distant cousins with a whole lot of people, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, in fact, he is distant cousins with a whole lot of people. And the fact that that comes up and it's notable is really interesting to me. Yeah, it comes up here. So we're going to come back with a whole new series where we're going to dissect a completely different serial killer. But in some ways, it's going to relate to some of what's happened here. And that's what we're going to do on the next episode. We're, we're going to lead into how we're going to cover that killer. So as far as Robert Long goes, him being our Genesis killer, you agree that the, this guy, regardless of how we look at, you know, the sort of the overarching time frame. This guy is a serial killer. He's a serial predator. Well, I think that serial killers and serial predators could be very different things, but um, there is absolutely no indication in any of the research I did that he it has been over, um, like it's been exaggerated with him. He was no question responsible uh, and confessed to, uh, you know, at least 10 murders and, uh, lots of sexual assaults, right? Right. So um, the way I'm differentiating that is the serial predator part applies to the rapes and to some degree to the murderers. And then the serial killer part obviously applies to the murderers. Right. And yes, the answer is yes to both of those. Um, it doesn't look like he, ha it doesn't look like he had any sort of interest in, you know, making a bigger deal out of his case and his victims than uh, was already there. Kind of like how Bundy did like grandstanding everything or whatever. He didn't do any of that stuff. Right. No, it doesn't look that way to me at all. So, I mean, there, yeah. is, there's, there are court documents over the years, but it's more about like very technical appeals than anything else. Right. And a lot of that is, uh, even though it seems like a lot, when you're looking at a death penalty case, uh, all of them are a lot really. Yeah, um, right. I, I find it interesting that it's – I find it interesting when there's not a lot. <laughs> that that makes it more skeptical to me than – When it's uh, like short and sweet, you mean? Right. Like I saw I saw a case – Ah, now I can't remember what it had to do with it. We may have talked about it. But like somebody had been put to death in like four years, like from the time the crime happened. And so they were convicted of it and – then they ended up being put to death and the, the time span was four years. And I was like, and I think it was in Texas. Um, but I was like, <laughs> that was like the most efficient death sentence I've ever seen happen. Like, because most of the time it's not like that. Right. 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 Now there was quite a bit of like physical evidence and like victim testimony. So he had left like some of his victims alive, but um, he had, murdered a couple of girls, but there was DNA to link him to them. 
And so I don't know how many appeals were there, but it was such a short amount of time and you just don't ever see that. And so it caught my attention that they were like, this occurred in this year. And then he's, you know, four years later, the victims watched him be put to death. And I was like, wow. Thank you so much for joining us today. I would ask if you guys like the show, please share the show or you can go on to your favorite podcast app, whether it's Apple or Google or uh, one of the more interesting apps, Spotify, Overcast. Uh, we're on all those different things. If you could go on there and leave us a, a rating or a review. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to leave us a five-star review, but like whatever you think of the show, leave an honest review of the show uh, because that will help us to grow our audience in season four. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time. wild like there's a distance it's not that long time but there's like a, a time distance from the time you record these to the time they get like edited and put out and in two of these cases there's been updates first of all the attorney in the madison's brook case the reason i didn't want to mention him is because i'm pretty sure his name is robert joseph long and i was like that would have just been so weird trying to explain that um but so first degree uh, rape indictments did come down against some of those kids and they were charged in some other rape cases. Um, as weird as that case is. And the attorneys have continued to speak out on their behalf. I, you know, it's tantamount to victim blaming and it, it's kind of hard to talk about all of that. Uh, the other guy, the serial, um, like days after we recorded this, uh, this, the serial rapist out of, um, South Carolina, Randolph, he, uh, apparently was killed in his cell, so he won't face any charges for that. I just thought it was interesting that those cases had updates in this short a period of time. But there they are, and this was the end of the Genesis series to talk about how uh, a serial killer... I mean, he was one of the first serial killers that I ever looked at. So for me to be able to look at this case and then share this story, I think it shows how my interest in all of this is like what the beginning was for me. I think this is probably something like that.